week when most students go back to school. And if you can remember those days, perhaps you find yourself in those days, it is a very tedious time of the year. The preparations that are made, the supplies that are gathered, the apprehension about what is to be in a new school year, whether it be out in a public school setting where you'll have to, you know, have teachers and peers and friends and drama, or even whether it be in a homeschool environment or whether it be in college, it's filled with challenges and changes and things to be ready for and adjustments that need to be made in life. Well, as true as that is for our kids and our students in these days, it is also true for us as Christians. The one difference is this, is that for our kids, their schedule is pretty much set. They know that in May or June, they'll be released for the summer, and then again at the end of August, early September, they'll go back. But for you and I, the classroom of God's Holy Spirit that we are enrolled in, the sessions of God's education and teaching that he does within our lives, those things come without any announcement at all. When God decides it's time for us to go through something that will teach us, then we find ourselves in the classroom whether we like it or not. It's interesting to me that when Jesus first saw Peter, the apostle Peter for the very first time, it says that Jesus beheld Peter. That's the word that it uses. And it's the only time that that particular word is used in the New Testament. And the word means a lot more than that he just glanced at him or checked him out. But it means that he looked at him and he examined him through and through. He saw right to the core of Peter. And after looking at Peter and beholding everything that he was, Jesus made this statement. He said, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. You are shifting. That's what Simon means. But you shall be Petros or little rock. You are a man who's wavering and unstable. But when I'm done doing what I'm going to do in your life, you will be a stable man, like a small rock. And so Jesus looked at Peter, and as he looked at him, he saw not just what Peter was at that moment, but he saw everything that he was going to do in his life to make Peter what Peter would ultimately one day become. He does the same thing in our lives. When he looks at us, when he saves us, when he lets us in, when he draws us to the Father and we give our lives to Christ. He sees us not just as we are at that moment, but he also sees everything that he's going to do from beginning to end. And like it says in Philippians, it says, he who began a good work in us will be faithful to perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. But here's what that means. It means that every day of our Christian walk, we are enrolled in God's seminary, the school of God's spirit. And we have classes, we have electives, we have things that we choose and things that we don't that God is going to take us through because he's committed to making us what he sees us to be when he first saves us. And that's always true. Now, as we come to chapter 19, we see Elijah again, the prophet, a man who's greatly used and greatly anointed of God. But in this chapter, Elijah is going back to school. Elijah is going to learn a few things tonight that God sees that he needs to be completed and formed into what God ultimately wants him to be. And the good news is that as we see the lessons that God taught Elijah in this chapter, it also gives us insight into the same things that God is doing within our lives as well. 
Now, thus far, Elijah has been a man of bedrock stability, an example of strength for us in the scripture. He was unmoved at the prospect of confronting Ahab, the wicked king. He was obedient to God when called to dwell by a brook and be fed by an unclean bird, a raven. He obeyed God when called to go to Zarephath and ask to be supported by a Gentile widow woman in her son. He was bold when he was asked to show himself then to Ahab and he confronted the 450 prophets calling down fire from heaven and seeing a great and miraculous victory in the name of the Lord. And where we left him, he was praying down the rain and outrunning the chariot of Ahab. And we see this strong, stable man that many of us look at and hold up and say, God, make me like Elijah. I would love to have that kind of faith and that kind of ministry. But tonight we see that even the strongest of men has feet of clay. And as spiritually high as Elijah was in the last chapter, he will go equally as low through what happens in tonight's chapter. So what are the lessons that Elijah is to learn in this season that we also can glean from? As we approach our text, six things for you if you're taking notes tonight. Lessons that God taught Elijah in this season of his life. And lesson number one hits us right off the bat, and that is this, is that after the mountaintop, beware the valley. Notice in verse one. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel, his pagan wife, all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword, the 450 prophets of Baal from the last chapter. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Elijah, you're toast. There's a price on your head, and the gods do more to me if I don't get my way and have you dead by this time tomorrow. And when he saw that, he arose and he went for his life. And he came to Beersheba, about 70 miles from where he was, which belongeth to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father. Elijah is just coming off of one of the greatest moments of his life and one that will be enshrined throughout the hallways of history as one of the greatest things ever done by one of God's saints. He was so charged after the contention that he had with the prophets of Baal that he ran from Mount Carmel on foot across the Megiddo Valley to Jezreel, about 17 or 18 miles and so much strength he had that he outran the chariot that Ahab was riding in being carried by horses. I mean, this was a man who was charged. The fire of God not only fell upon the altar, but it fell upon Elijah. And he was being moved at that time. But here now, this man, who was unmoved by so much previously, now all it takes is a threatening letter from a pagan woman, and something just snaps inside of him. 
there's a Fireside cartoon that I remember from years ago. It was of a couple of cavemen, and one of them had a bow and arrow in his hand. And next to him was a giant elephant, you know, just one of those prehistoric mammoth elephants with a tiny little arrow stuck in its belly, and the elephant was turned up on its back, and it was dead. And the friend looked at his, you know, friend with the bow, and he said, you better write that spot down. <laughs> you know, and, and it's kind of funny, but it's the same exact thing that we kind of see going on in Elijah here. I mean, here's this mammoth man of God that seems unmoved by anything that comes. He's just the picture of strength. And now he gets a letter. He doesn't even get, you know, see a threat or is surrounded by an army. It's just a letter from this pagan woman that she's going to kill him. And he just snaps and now he just runs. I believe that this is part of the reason why the Apostle James tells us in the New Testament that Elijah was a man of like passions, like as we are. James chapter 5, verse 17. That although he had the power and the ability to walk with God and to believe God for great things, he also had the vulnerabilities that you and I also feel and have. I mean, how many times have we had it in our lives where we go from the mountaintop with God spiritually and it seems like we're soaring. Things are happening. We finally had a breakthrough and we're moving with God the way that we've always desired to and wanted. And then we go right from that mountaintop into a valley and we think, what in the world happened? God, I thought, but now, listen, it's not uncommon. We see it all throughout the Bible. I think of Abraham who after the slaughter of the kings, just a few moments later, it says that a horror of great darkness came upon him to the point where God had to come to him and say, fear not, Abraham. I think of Joseph not long after being shrouded with the coat of many colors, the symbol that he would be the heir of Jacob's blessing. But just a few moments later, he finds himself in a pit being sold as a slave into Egypt. I think of Moses who spent 40 days and 40 nights on a mountaintop with God, hearing God's voice audibly, having the law written with the finger of God on the tablets of stone. But he came down into the valley and he saw the children of Israel fornicating and breaking the very law of God that he was bringing. I think of Daniel who saw the Lord, one of the few in scripture that did. But immediately after that vision, he had no strength and he was so weak and felt so defiled that he couldn't even stand up. I think of the disciples who were on the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transfigured, glorified in their presence. They saw Moses and Elijah appear there and talk with him. A magnificent spiritual experience. But yet the experience ended and they came down in the valley and immediately were met with a demon-possessed man so held that they weren't able to even cast the demons out himself. A struggle that went beyond the proportions of the blessing that they had just experienced. What gives? Why is it that so often we go on a mountaintop with God, but then we come off of it to just go into a valley like we see happening with Elijah here? In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 11, Moses wrote and he said this. He said that the land that you are going into, he said it's a land of hills and valleys that drinks water of the rain of heaven. Here's the fact of life about this promised land life that you and I are living is that it is not a perpetual high. We don't just get saved and begin walking with the Lord and he kind of lifts us up and keeps us up and we live this life kind of walking on a cloud. Everything just goes our way and everything is good. There's always music in the background and angels around us and all of our enemies are just falling at our right hand and at our left and we're just perpetually blessed and elevated. It's not like that. 
We have ups and we have downs in the Christian life. Now, this was a huge stumbling block to me in my early days as a Christian. I couldn't understand the roller coaster. Why is it that one day I'm feeling like I'm right with God and everything is good, but then the next day I'm questioning if I'm even saved at all? Did anything even really happen? And I would go to these you know, highs and then these long lows, and I thought that something was wrong with me because it looked like everybody else was just blessed and stable, and here I was kind of like this you know, roller coaster type ride with the Lord. What gives? Listen, it's part of what we go through as Christians. It's a land of hills and valleys. So what are the keys to surviving the valley? How do you get through those times when you're trying to figure out what God is doing and why things aren't working out the way they are? Well, a couple of things. Number one, recognize that it's part of the journey. That you're not on new ground if you find yourself in somewhat of a slump and it seems like God feels like he's far away. God is as much present with you in the valley as he is when you are on the mountaintop. And there are things that we learn of God that he teaches us while we're on the mountain. But there are things of God that he can only teach us when we are in the valley. And therefore, there are times that he prescribes the valley because of something of himself he needs us to see or learn or sense. Number two is that no valley lasts forever. It's a land of hills and valleys, and even when the darkest, the darkness of the current moment extends as far as you can perceive with your eyes or with your conceptual understanding of things as they are, daybreak can happen in a moment because things with God change on a dime. Number three key to surviving the valley is that if it happens to you, understand this, that it is absolutely necessary. To avoid the valley that God wants to bring you in, is to avoid something that he needs to do for you to maybe even protect you from something that will be even worse in your future. Even if that something worse is just missing the lesson that he wants to teach you right now. He's doing it for a reason. And then number four, key to surviving the valley, is that the Lord is in the valley. And that water always seeks the lowest place. Psalm 104, verse 10, it says that he sends the springs among the valleys which run among the hills. In other words, the hills and the valleys, it's all part of the terrain, but the springs of God, they flow in the valleys and the water always gathers there. I think of Psalm chapter 84 uh, in verse 5. The psalmist declares, he says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca, that's weeping in the Hebrew, make it a well, the rain also fills the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appears before God. Listen, if you're in the valley of weeping tonight, understand that God is with you there and his spring is just as living there. Make it a well. It's not forever. He's doing, he's doing his work. The second um, lesson that we learn from Elijah or that Elijah learns and that we kind of learn uh, through him is this, is that what you believe must triumph over what you behold. Notice in verse 2 what it says there. I'm sorry, it's in verse 3. It says that when he saw that. In other words, the letter comes from Jezebel, and it says that when he saw that, it says that he arose and he went for his life, and he came to Bathsheba. And the idea is, behind this, what he saw is that he made an assessment of the situation based upon his best perception of it. He saw the wickedness of Jezebel and her hold on Ahab and the nation. 
He saw the stronghold of wickedness that existed throughout the people. He saw the weakness of Ahab. Remember in the last chapter that he was one of the ones that was bowed down to the God of Israel when the fire fell? And Elijah had to get him up and say, arise and go to Jezreel because the flood is coming, the rain is coming. He had bowed the knee to God in the last chapter, but he hadn't repented of his sin and Elijah perceived it. He perceived that the best that he could do was not enough to sway the nation at that moment. And he saw that no man stood with him or stood up for him against Jezebel and Ahab. And when all of that happened, that perception in his mind, something snapped. Now, that's what he saw and what he perceived. He also knew a couple things. He knew in his heart that he was serving the true and the living God. He knew that he was called of God to be a prophet and to do everything that he had done. He knew that God had kept him alive through the famine and in spite of the torture and death that Ahab and Jezebel had brought upon the other prophets. And he knew that God was sovereign over life and death. He had learned that in the things that God had already taught him. He knew all of those things. And here's the mistake that Elijah made at this point in his life. Is that he traded what he knew for what he didn't know. What didn't he know? Elijah didn't know what God was doing behind the scenes. He didn't know how God was working in the hearts of those that saw what happened on Mount Carmel and then would hear about it through the testimony of the witnesses. He didn't know how this particular event played into the orchestration of the whole thing that God was doing both in the nation and in Elijah's life personally. And so he looked at the situation from his vantage point, made his best assessment, and then he responded to how he felt it was working without looking to the Lord in it. And any time that we make decisions for our lives based upon how we perceive things or how we feel things to be or what we can see with our best insight and vision, we're always bound to make mistakes. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk according to the things that we see or perceive. We walk according to the things that we know because it's what God said. In Psalm chapter 33, verses 18 and 19, the psalmist declares and he says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. Elijah knew that because he knew his God, but he allowed what he saw to overrule and overpower what he knew. Psalm chapter 97 verse 10 says that he preserves the soul of his saints and he delivers them out of the hands of the wicked. Elijah knew how God had preserved David for a decade while he was running from Saul who sought his life. He knew how God had preserved his life while he had been running from Ahab and Jezebel previously. He knew all of those things. But when he traded what he knew for what he didn't know, he allowed discouragement to rise up in his soul and it caused him to flee. Now the same thing is true for us. When we trade what we know, the promises of God, for what we don't know, the things that are unseen, or we act by perception and not by promise, then we always do things that we ultimately will regret. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, and I love this passage of Scripture. It's a favorite for Christians in every generation. He says this. He says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Listen, church. When you lose hope that God is for you, that God is with you, that he's going to fulfill his word and that you're not the exception to every promise that he has given. He'll keep it for everybody else, but not for me. When your hope fails, you do things that you're ashamed of. But when your hope doesn't fail and you trust that God's upholding you in his hand, that he knows the path that you're on, that your steps are sure and ordered by him, no matter where you find yourself, if your faith in what he says is constant, then your hope will be strong and you won't do things that you're ashamed of, like Elijah who's now running for his life because of a threat that comes from this. What you believe must triumph over what you behold or what you perceive. The, 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 the other thing that's answered in this passage here is kind of the question of what made Elijah snap? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of question that I ask. When I look at this guy, I mean, it's got to be more than just the letter. I don't think, in fact, that it was the letter. I don't think Elijah here is afraid of death. And here's why. Because he asks God to take his life. He's not afraid of death because he wouldn't say, God, take my life if he was afraid of death. It has nothing to do with that at all. So what is it that has Elijah so down in this thing? A couple of suggestions based upon just what Elijah says. First of all, I think part of it is this. Is that for Elijah, the furnace was fine during the famine, but not during the feast. See, during the time that there was no rain on the land, remember when the brook dried up and he had to go up to Zarephath? During that whole time, Elijah really was in the crucible. He was being fed by a raven. He had no certain dwelling place. He's living up in Gentile territory and living kind of lean and under reproach and being humbled as pride. And he, he kind of lived that way for the full three and a half years of the famine. But now the revival comes. God pours out rain. I mean, the spirit is moving again. People are turning back to the living God. And Elijah is stoked. He's so excited that he outruns the chariot. And he goes to Jezreel, which is the very place where Jezebel was, because he's so sure that God is going to move and that the tide is going to turn here. But then it doesn't. And he realizes, wait a minute. I'm going to have to live the same way now that there's rain that I was living when there was no rain and I don't want to do it anymore. He says, it is enough. That's enough, he says. I don't want to do this anymore, God. I'm done. I'm through. I quit. Here's my resignation. I don't want to live in this type of famine type situation anymore. I believe that that was part of it. I've been there before. I don't know about you. Where it just seems that you cannot take even one more day of God's chastisement or preparation, or humbling, or preparation, whatever it is that he's doing. You don't even know what he's doing, but you know he's doing something. Either that or you really are cursed, you know. I think we all feel like that sometimes. But I've said, Lord, that's it. I don't want to do this anymore. But then I always come around and say, all right, God, do your work. Finish what you're going to do. You know, you know we're, we're like that. I believe the bigger reason why Elijah does this, though that was, I think, part of it. I think the bigger part was this is that what he envisioned for his life and for his ministry and for the nation was not happening. 
The things that he thought God was going to do with him, that God had raised him up for, were not coming to pass. He's the kind of guy, and he says it, he says, I am not greater than my father's. The idea there is that I have not done more than my fathers. Not like he's trying to be greater than them. In other words, the works that I have done don't match what I have seen or read about in the history. The idea is that he knew what happened when when, uh, Joshua came across the Jordan River and the revival that took place as the people gave themselves to God. He knew what took place in the days of Gideon where the hearts of the people were turned back. He knew the stories of David and how the people united under David and there was a spiritual move of God in Israel in David's days. He knew the story of Solomon when he dedicated the temple and the people cried with one voice allegiance to their God. And he envisioned for his life and ministry the same type of thing happening. And yet now he realizes that it's not God's plan for things to work out that way. That the sum of the hearts of the people are turning. The overarching tide is still that of wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. And he's not seeing things happen the way that he wanted. Now, here's what Elijah's not considering in all of this. By the way, have you ever felt like that? God, I really thought you were going to do things a certain way. I thought by now in my life I would be at such and such a point or doing such and such a thing, and yet I find that I'm not. Here's what Elijah wasn't considering, and I think it's where we fail as well. First of all, is that greatness is defined very differently in heaven than it is on earth. In Luke chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, the things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination to the Lord. See, we look at things on a human perspective, and if it's big, if it's successful, if it's beautiful and bold, if it's productive and profitable, we look at it and we say, that is something that is blessed of God. But God sometimes looks at the same thing we're seeing and he sees it from the inside and he sees, you know what, the motivation behind it or the means by which it's being accomplished is actually quite corrupt. And so where you look at it and say that's a blessing, I look at it and I say that's not a blessing at all. That's an abomination. And so greatness is defined differently between heaven and on earth. You can be great on earth but despised by heaven and vice versa. You can be great in heaven and yet be despised on earth. When you read the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, which is just a listing of 30-something saints from old that did great things for God, you realize that most of them were despised in their lifetime. Many of them never saw the fruit of their labor or of their ministries while they were yet living. They had to wait until they watched from heaven to see how the fruit of their ministry played out for generations and centuries to come, how God used them, used their lives. The reality is that our fruit always surpasses our figuring out. We can never figure how God is using the things that we're doing, and we never will until we get to glory. Elijah's fruit is going to last long into the future. I mean, really, his ministry is going to last long into the future. You think of David, who was king for 40 years, Solomon, king for 40 years, Moses, whose ministry kind of lasted 40 years. You look at these guys and say, man, that was a long ministry. You know how long Elijah's ministry lasts? Thousands of years. Because he doesn't die. He doesn't know this yet, but he's not actually going to die like everyone else. God's going to swoop down and scoop him up to heaven and put his life on pause because he's got more work to do on earth. It's not done yet. He's going to be standing with Jesus and Peter uh, and uh, Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration a couple of hundred years later, still serving, still having a purpose, still standing before the Lord of the universe. 
He's going to come back to earth during the tribulation time and he's going to testify in Jerusalem for 42 months. Then he's going to be killed and he's going to raise from the dead and be caught up a second time. God's still got hundreds of years of ministry for Elijah to accomplish. And yet he looks at his life in the position that he's at now. He's seeing that there's not as much fruit as I thought there would be and he allows it to discourage him because he doesn't understand how fruit works in eternal things. And so the scripture tells us, don't be weary in well-doing, for you will reap in due season if you faint not. The Bible says that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says that they that measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Because you cannot look at what God is doing in someone else's life or what he did with someone's life in times past, compare it to what he's doing with you, and then assess whether or not you're fruitful before the Lord. If you abide in Jesus and you do what God's called you to do, then you will bear fruit, whether you see it or not in your lifetime. And it will be true for Elijah as he goes forward. I believe also in this, there's something else going on. And that's this. I believe every person especially every Christian, has a Peter point. Remember when Peter said, Lord, I will die for you. Though everyone else denies you, I'll never deny you. I'll die for you, Jesus. And yet Jesus looked at Peter and with a smile and a wink, he said, Peter, you don't realize this, but the cock isn't going to crow three times before you deny me that you even know me three times. And Jesus saw something in Peter that Peter didn't even see in himself, is that Peter, I'm about to allow pressure to be put on you that's going to push you past the point of your resolve and your conviction. And you're going to see what happens then. And that only a few hours later, Peter finds himself doing the very thing that Jesus said, denying Jesus. And he says that he went out and he wept bitterly because of it. I believe every one of us has a Peter point. And I believe that in every one of our lives, if we allow God to have his way in us, he will push us just a little bit further than our natural strength, resources, and mental capacity will allow us to sustain. You say, is he cruel? Is he like the ant bully? Like, why would God, do, is he just like going, hey, Gabriel, come here, I want you to see this. Look what I'm about to do. Check this out. Boulder. You know, why? God, why do you do that? Here's why. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 27 says this. It says that the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And when you find that the burden is too great for your shoulders to carry and you give out like Elijah did and you fall, what you find is that under you the whole time were the everlasting arms of God. And your life takes on a whole new dimension as you find that he's upholding you in ways that you could never uphold yourself but you never would have discovered that had you not gone through the very Peter point that God was pushing you to and through to get you to that understanding. Elijah needed to learn it. Lesson number three in Elijah's life is this, is that God's goodness reaches beyond our weakness. Notice in verse five, it says that as he lay and he slept under a juniper tree, it says, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise or a vessel of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. 
At this point, Elijah is about 70 miles outside of the will of God. God did not direct him to run to Beersheba and hide in a cave and then leave his servant there and keep on going. God didn't lead him to do this. He's outside of God's will. Now, it seems that to the logical mind, at this point, a little bit of chastisement is in order, don't you think? A sprained ankle, maybe? Or maybe a disease, something debilitating to let Elijah know that he's going in the wrong direction. Or maybe like God did with Balaam. Remember the angel with the flaming sword that stood in the passageway and didn't let the donkey pass by? It just seems like that's what God should do right now, right? Elijah's running away. He's not supposed to be doing that, but that's not what happens. God doesn't rebuke him or chastise him or hurt him or break his ankle, but rather he comes to Elijah while he's sleeping in his most discouraged space. He sends an angel with a hot meal and a glass of water. And he says, hey, arise and eat because the journey's too great for you. God knew that he was 70 miles out now, but by the time he's done, he's going to be another 300 miles outside of where he's supposed to be. And God comes and he meets him there with kindness. Now I say, God, what gives in that? When Elijah was in the perfect will of God, you fed him with an unclean bird and he had to drink from a dirty brook. Now he's outside of your will and you're giving him a hot meal and glass of water. Isn't that just like the Lord? See, oftentimes when I feel like God is going to blast me because of something I'm doing, he turns around and he blesses me instead. He takes care because he sees our soul. Psalm 103, verse 14, it says that he knows our frame and he considers that we are just dust. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and patience? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. See, he's not looking for us to screw up so that he can knock us off our horse and beat us over the side of the head or send someone to yell at us and rebuke us for where we're at. But he draws us back with cords of kindness and love. What does that do for us? I know what it does for me. That when God deals with me this way, it drives me back to him. It doesn't push me away. It makes me want to be in his will. It settles me down and it makes me want to please him. And the lesson is that Elijah's learning here is that God's goodness reaches beyond our weakness, that when we fail, he remains strong within our lives. The fourth lesson Elijah learns is actually a warning. The warning is this, and this is a good warning. I think we need to hear this, is that the power of God does not depart from your life when you're out of his will. Notice with me in verse eight. It says that he arose and he did eat and drink. And he went in the strength of that meat for 40 days and 40 nights unto Oreb, Horeb, or Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? One of the things that happens to Elijah when the hand of God is upon his life is that he has great physical strength. We've seen that already. He outran Ahab's chariot. He built the altar of the Lord. Here he runs 300 miles off the strength of one meal. The hand of God is upon this man's life. But the interesting thing to me in all of this is that God's hand is still on him to be able to do this even though he's moving in the wrong direction. He doesn't fail even though he's moving the wrong direction. Romans chapter 11, verse 29 says this, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. In other words, God doesn't, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't call us, gift us, or make a promise, give something to us, and then take it away because we're outside of his will. We saw that with Samson. He was screwing around like crazy, but God didn't take his hand off. 
We saw it with David. We saw it with his son Solomon. And we see it in our own lives too. One of the most foolish things that a Christian can do is to gauge your position with God by your usefulness. In other words, to say, well, God is still using me, so therefore my behavior must be acceptable in his sight. Not so. If I have a skill saw that I use to build things and someone steals it from me, that skill saw doesn't stop working just because it's no longer in my possession. It's not where it's supposed to be, but it's still a skill saw and it does what it's supposed to do. If God gives you a gift of evangelism, or a gift of healing, or the ability to perform miracles. If God, whatever it is that God gives you, and he gives every one of us something, that gift doesn't just disappear just because we're outside of the will of God. I wish it did work that way. I wish God was like hot and cold with his usefulness in our lives. That when I'm not doing right, he took his hand off. And when I was doing right, he put his hand on. Then I could be like, okay, I can kind of use this thing to figure out where I'm supposed to be in life. He doesn't do it that way. Here's what he calls us to do. He says, walk in the light. Obey my precepts and fear me. And be warned, take heed that God's gifts and calling will not depart from you just because you're walking in the wrong, um, the wrong direction. Lesson five that he learns is this, is that the Christian life is never about what you get or what you do, but rather it's about who you get. Notice in verse 10, God asks him, what are you doing here? And here's what Elijah responds. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, he says two things that are true in that statement. And he says one thing that's not true. He says, I've been jealous for you. That's true. He says, the children of Israel have forsaken you and torn down your altars. That's true. But then he says... I, even I only, am the only one left. Everyone else has forsaken you. That's not true. And he says, they seek my life to take it away. But here's what Elijah is basically saying to God. He's saying, God, I've kept my side of the deal. I've been jealous for your name and for your glory. I've remained faithful in the midst of a nation that's turned its back on you. But you haven't kept your side of the deal. Here I am now running for my life even after I've been faithful to you. Why is it, God, that they turn their backs on you and they're doing fine? The famine is over, but I've been faithful and I find myself still on the run. That's the accusation that Elijah brings before God. Well, God gives an answer to him. He says, you know, Elijah, come here for a minute. Verse 11. He said, the Lord, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And it says, behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now, can you imagine with me for one minute what it would be like to watch wind tear rocks in half? We're not talking about, you know, a chain, like a, you know, a demolition saw or dynamite. We're talking about wind that blows and tears the rocks. And Elijah sees that, but as he sees it, he perceives that God's not in it. It's powerful, it's earth-changing, but God's not in it. Then it says, but the Lord was not in it. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And that after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still small 
This type of thing has been the crux and the foundation of Elijah's whole life and ministry. I mean, everything that we've seen Elijah do has been in the miraculous. It's been in signs and wonders, the supernatural, the manifestations of God, his power, the experiences. That's been everything that Elijah has done so far. But here's what God is seeking to teach Elijah in this moment of his life, is that those things, Elijah, cannot be the foundation of your relationship with me because those things can never sustain you. They don't last. What happens when it's over, Elijah? What happens when the revival comes? What happens when there's no more need? Once you've accomplished, then what happens? Where does your faith stand then when there's no more need for that miraculous? That's not what it's all about. That's not why I called you. One of the reasons why Elijah was so shaken at the letter from Jezebel is because all of the signs, wonders, and miracles that he had done didn't produce faith within his heart. One of the greatest myths that people believe is that if they see some miracle or sign that God does, that then they will believe. The scripture contradicts that over and over and over again. Because almost everyone in the scripture that sees signs and wonders goes from that point to a place of unbelief later. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The foundation of Elijah's relationship with God was built upon the wrong thing. It's not about the supernatural. It's about me. And you're missing it, Elijah. And he hears the still small voice. And now here's what happens. The word of God comes to Elijah in a way that it never had before. Every other time that we see Elijah hearing from God, it uses this phrase. It says, and the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord came to him. It says it four or five times in the two chapters prior to this. The word of the Lord came to him. But for the first time here, it says that he heard a still small voice. And in a couple of verses, it's going to say, and the Lord said unto him. First time it says it that way. See, the whole crux of Elijah's ministry and life is changing at this point as he gets to know God on a deeper and more intimate level. Now, I love, I love what God says when he hears the whisper, the still small voice. Notice in verse 13. It says that it was so that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entering in of the cave and behold, there came a voice unto him and it said, what doest thou here, Elijah? <laughs> Same thing that he heard up in those verses up above. Why are you 370 miles away from where I called you to be? <laughs> Why are you all the way down here in this whole thing? Now, I'm amazed at a couple things. First of all, I'm amazed that God knows his name. He calls him by name. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, regardless of how bitter Elijah is trying to be, that had to move him somewhat at this moment. To realize that the God of the universe knows your name. What does that do to you? I know that to me, sometimes it puts me in a place of unbelief. Maybe he knows my number. You know, the barcode, like, you know, whatever, however they keep logs and things in heaven. But to think that he knows my name. He knows Elijah's name. The other thing, he knows right where Elijah is. Why would Elijah go to Mount Oreb? I mean, why run to Mount Sinai of all places? Two reasons. Number one, I think he's trying to quit. I mean, we know he's trying to quit. He already said, God, it's enough. Take away my life. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And probably what he's doing, he's probably trying to leave the promised land by the same route the children of Israel came in. Remember, they crossed Sinai, went through the wilderness. Elijah takes the exact opposite direction. He's like, I'm out of here. And he goes to Mount Oreb. I think the greater and probably the more real reason why he goes there is because he really needs to hear from God. 
And he thinks, if there's any place on the planet I can go and hear God's voice in a time this dark and discouraging, it's going to be Mount Sinai. Because that's the only place I know of where God has ever spoken audibly in a way that people could hear it. And so he goes to Mount Sinai. The reason I think that's why he went there is because I've had that thought myself. I don't know about you, but I thought, if I could get to Mount Sinai, God would speak to me there. I think if you got there, he would speak to you. He would say, what are you doing here? (laughs) I don't think God accepts resignations that readily. And I'm thankful for it. Lesson six, final lesson in Elijah's school session here is grace. Notice in verse 15 or verse 14. He says, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's up in Syria. And when you come, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in thy room or in your place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not uh, kissed him. God recommissions Elijah here at this point, but Elijah is a changed man. He hears God's voice in a way that he never had previously. When before, his relationship had been an experience of going from mountaintop to mountaintop and surviving what was in between. He comes to a place now where he can hear God's voice with him constantly and God uh, shows that, that he's with him. And the God of Israel at this point becomes the God of Elijah. It says that the Lord said unto him. Previously, it'd be kind of like a memo. You know, you get a memo at the office, has kind of your name on it or your department and it says what you're supposed to be. That's what it had been, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord. Now, God said unto him. He needed to learn grace. He needed to learn God in a different way than he had previously. The second part of this thing here is God shows Elijah that he doesn't need him. God doesn't need Elijah to do what he wants to do. He tells him everything that's going to happen from this point into the future, showing that he already knows everything that's going on. Elijah, you're all stumbled because things aren't happening the way that you thought, but I know exactly what's happening. I know that you're going to go back to Syria now and you're going to anoint Haziel. Then you're going to anoint Elisha who's going to take over you and you're going to spend the next 10 years discipling him to be the prophet in your place after that. And him that isn't killed by Haziel will be killed by Jehu and who isn't killed by Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And then God says this most amazing thing in the world. He says, hey, you think you're real special, Elijah? That you, even you only are left and everyone else is turned? Well, guess what? There are 7,000 other people on other mountains in Israel saying the same thing right now that you're saying. You're not alone in this thing. I'm working in so many other lives, Elijah, the same way that I am working in yours. And everything that I'm doing in your life and have done in your life and will do in your life is the byproduct of my grace because I don't need you. But you get to serve me. And you get to know me. But I could do it a thousand or seven thousand ways if I wasn't going to do it with you. But I want to do it with you. 
And that's the same thing that God would whisper to you and to me tonight. You are made so unique. There is not another person that's made like you or that can do what you've been called to do or been given to do. And God doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you. That's how much he loves you. But it's all by his grace. It's grace and nothing else. And by the way, Jezebel's threat, it amounted to nothing. It didn't happen. It was all words, smoke and mirrors. But we read on and we find out that it worked. Notice in verse 19. It says, so he departed thence and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. And he with the 12th. And Elijah, okay, now it gets confusing again. Remember Rehoboam and Jeroboam? This is worse. You got Elijah and Elisha. You got to remember and and figure out the J and the S. Go, Go figure that one out. Okay, so he finds Elisha and Elisha is plowing with the 12th yoke. And it says that Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. It was a clear sign to Elisha of what was happening. Elijah was saying, you are the successor. Come and follow me. It was a symbolic call that didn't even possess words. He just threw the mantle on and kept going and left it to Elisha to make the call. I find it interesting. Again, we see a man of God here called of God, but he's working at the time that God calls him. He's plowing with the 12th yoke of oxen. It says in verse 20 that he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said unto him, go back again for what have I done to thee? Now, this reminds me of a story in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus said, come and follow me? And the man said, let me first go bury my father and then I will come follow you. That's a completely different thing that's happening there than happening here. See, the man in the New Testament wanted closure with the family affairs so that he could be financially secure before he gave his life to following Jesus. Let me bury my father first, close the the estate, then I will be set up in a way where I can come and follow you. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me, do what I told you to. But that's not what Elisha is saying here. He's not saying, let me go bury my father. He's saying, let me go honor my father. I'm here in the field. I'm working his craft, his field, his plow. So let me go and kiss them and tell them that I am going. I have decided that I'm going to follow. It's definitive. He's made up his mind. He's going to leave what he has behind and he's going to respond to the call of God and he's going to prove it with what he's going to do next. But I want you to notice what Elijah says to Elisha. He says, go back again for what have I done to you? I want you to notice the difference in Elijah at this point. That no longer is he trying to control things or does he think that he's even in control of things. He's saying, hey, I haven't done this. What have I done? I threw my mantle on you because God told me to. Your response is up to you. See, he's in a new place. He's a new man. The whole dimension of Elijah's ministry is going to change at this point. He's not going to be the prophet of miracles and signs and wonders anymore. He's going to be the picture of strength, stability, and fellowship with Jesus. That's the the new strength. He says, hey, you you can respond or not. It's not up to me. It's up to God. It's God's thing. That's the proper mentality that we should have about our lives at all times. It's about his plan, his will. Look what he does. Verse 21, so he returned back from him and he took a yoke of oxen and he slew them and he boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and he gave it to the people and they did eat. And then he arose and he went after Elijah and he ministered unto him. He burns the very yoke of oxen that he had been plowing with. 
He uses their yoke and their instruments as the fodder for that flame. He, in a sense, says, God, I am leaving everything of my old life behind because I want to follow and respond to the calling that you have for me. And he obediently walks along then with Elijah. And we don't read anything about Elisha for 10 years. For 10 years, he does nothing but ministers to Elijah. He learns from him. He follows him. And we'll see that his ministry takes on an incredible dimension of its own when Elijah passes off the scene. What's the conclusion of the matter as we uh, come to a close? God's commitment and his patience with us is so immense, isn't it? He looks at our life and he sees what he wants to do. And then he begins to do it. And it takes a lifetime for him to do the things that he's going to do. And he's so incredibly patient as he works with us. I talk to my kids, they, they see it coming, they know we're getting ready for it about this time of year. And it happened, it happened a couple times over the past few nights. We sit down and we gather right before their bedtime, and this is, you know, the older ones, and we say, okay, we're coming up on a new school year. And they get the lecture from dad, and though they don't do it outwardly, their eyes roll in their heads silently, you know, as they go, here we go, he's going to give us the Solomon lecture, and God's been our future, and, you know, we're going to hear all the things that we're going to hear. But here's what I tell them every year. I say the most important thing in your life right now, what God has called you to do, is to learn. Aside from everything else, the number one is your relationship with God, that you're growing in him, that you're learning of him, that your prayer life is getting better, that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're cultivating a walk with him, that you understand the flesh and the spirit. All of that's always going to be number one every day of your life. But after that, right now, the most important thing in your life is that you learn as much as you can that you commit yourself and give yourself to your schoolwork and your studies, that you apply yourself, that you pray for God's help, that you you know, don't cut corners where you could cut corners, but go the extra mile. And I give them this pep, pep talk all, all, all the time. Well, now I give the same pep talk to you. God is absolutely committed to transforming us and conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus. That's what he wants in our lives. He's committed to do it. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. For you, the most important thing in your life is that you be given an absolute surrender to his desire and plan for your life, what he wants to do, and that you allow him to do it, whether it be over a mountain, or whether it be in the valley, or even in the valley of the shadow of death itself. And understand this, that no matter what you're going through right now, or no matter what's coming for you around the bend that you don't even see yet, God is with you in it. He's already gone before you. Romans 8, 18, Paul says that I perceive that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And the things that he is working in us right now through the experiences that we're feeling and going through and tasting and suffering, those things are working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory than we could ever comprehend or understand. He says, hang in there and stand with me in it. What's God's ultimate goal? Where is he bringing us? He's bringing us to a place where we're complete in Jesus Christ. He's bringing us to a place where we can say, yes, I have found that in Jesus there is rest for my soul. That is God's will for my life. When John the Baptist came on the scene and he was announcing the ministry of Christ, before it even happened, he said this about the ministry of Jesus. He said that when he comes, he will bring every mountain low 
and he will fill in every valley. He's going to take down the mountains. He's going to fill in the valleys. What did he mean by that? I mean, there was no topographical change, and that wasn't a topographical statement. What did he mean by it? Here's what he means. Is that as you're more conformed into the image of Christ, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of God, we don't stop going over mountains and going through valleys. That's life on this earth. But here's what happens is that we're so confident and so certain of his presence with us and his hands upholding us and what he's doing in our life and his faithfulness to us that whether we're on top of a mountain or whether we're in the valley, it's all the same to us. If I'm on a mountain, I go, praise the Lord. God, thank you for this season. But if I'm in the valley, I'm not freaking out because I don't understand what he's doing or because of the pain. I say, God, you've got me here right now. And I'm complete and I'm settled enough and I'm at home enough in you right now that I can be in this place and not be subverted or shaken or knocking off my foundation because of the things that are happening. See, that's what Jesus does in our lives. As we're brought closer to him, conformed into his image, he brings us into a place of absolute stability. You know what? That's exactly what he did with Peter. What did he say? You're shifty. You're going to be stable. And for the beginning of his life, he was shifty. But on the night before he was going to go to the guillotine, before he would be executed, we see him sleeping soundly. Not worried, not shaken. He's in a pit, he's in a dungeon, he's in a valley. It's even, maybe even to death. Resting in Jesus. That's God's will for our lives. May he have his perfect work in us. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for your testimonies. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, that you're willing to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we could ask or think. That the power of Christ that works in us, Lord, it works that glory. And we pray, Father, that wherever we're at right now and whatever is coming, Lord, we ask that we would have that steadfast faith, that we wouldn't be shaken, but, Lord, that you would stand with us. And so, Lord, please cleanse, please renew, please revive, please bring us back to you. And, Lord, like you did with Elijah, so faithful to teach him and cultivate and grow, Lord, we ask that you would do the same thing in us. And we thank you, Lord, for this time, for this word, and for your presence here. Bless us, Lord, in these days. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.